Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. My guest today is Rand Levy, author of Battle of Minds, The History of Computer Malware, and host of the Malicious Life podcast, which explores the people and the stories behind the cybersecurity industry and its revolution and evolution. Sorry. Uh, Rand Levy, welcome to the show. Hi, Micah. Thank you, for, thank you for having me. You know, we've talked in the past on the Politics Guys about cybersecurity and about hacking, mainly, though, in terms of that very well-known attack on the DNC's computer system during the 2016 presidential election. Now, at the time, my co-host, uh, Jay, suggested that the fault was really, in large part, the DNC's for having an insecure system, and that the Republicans probably weren't uh, hacked, weren't penetrated the same amount because their security was better. And as you're an expert in this area, I was hoping you could talk about, well, first off, exactly what happened to the Democratic and Republican committees, uh, who did it, and, you know, really the extent to which poor security might have been to blame for this. Uh, yeah, the DNC's hack was a very high profile hack. Um of course, not being a part of the investigation, I can't really say what exactly happened. And I don't think we they've released the, you know, the exact details of the hack. But what we do know, and I did an episode on that in, in, in Malicious Life, is that uh, two uh, Russian cyber groups were responsible for the hacks. Uh, one was called Cozy Bear. The other one is Fancy Bear. These are names that were given to the groups by uh, Western uh, companies. Uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing that the Russians called these, these groups uh, something different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> although great names, bear, cozy, fancy, yeah, totally. sounds good. Um, but what we do know is that two things. Uh, first, these two groups are uh, what we call pseudo-military or pseudo-intelligence. I mean, they are they are probably um, staffed by civilians, civilian hackers, and are in a way supported or directed by Russian intelligence and military uh, personnel. So there is a kind of plausible deniability there uh, by the Russian government. And that's on, on purpose, of course. And uh, you'd be may maybe the listeners would be a bit surprised to discover that these two groups, separate groups, were probably unaware of each other. Uh, hacking the DNC systems. Uh, it's kind of two, it's like kind of two thieves, you know, breaking into the same house, not being huh. aware of one okay. of the other. Uh, that's because the way that the Russian uh, cyber policy goes, uh, they, they kind of try to separate different branches of the military intelligence, uh, kind of uh, trying to encourage different groups to, you know, one-up one another. So, uh, these two groups have different methods of operation, and uh, one, I mean, Cozy Bear, the first one, is the more sophisticated one. Uh, we can guess that what they probably did was send some some official in the DNC a kind of a booby-trapped email with perhaps uh, uh, a PDF document attached or a doc uh, document uh, which had uh, some malicious software embedded in it. It's a very uh, common way of attack. And once that uh, email get, gets open and the PDF for whatever gets open, 
there is some sort of uh, malicious software running behind the scene. Probably the the user was wasn't even aware of something happening uh, out of, out of the ordinary on his computer. And then uh, from there, it's just a matter of uh, hopping from one computer to another in the network, slowly getting around the network, learning how how the network is, what's what how it is composed, and what are the different uh, systems in it. Uh, the second group, Fancy Bear, is uh, usually its its method of operations are a bit simpler. Uh, usually, we see with that group using email phishing. Uh, in the sense of uh, trying to direct the user to a kind of a URL, to some sort of a, of, a, of a URL which kind of seems as if it's legitimate. For example, it could be, I don't know, whitehouse.com, right? Except that the O in house is actually spelled with zero. Just this is a simple example. And if you're not too careful and not, uh, you know, not checking each letter and each character, you might not even notice it, except that it's a different website and it's booby-trapped. And once you, your browser gets to that uh, website, it gets crump- compromised. And from there, same process of taking over the network, one computer after the other. So we can uh, assume that that's what happened to the DNC. It's not a very sophisticated attack. And, uh, and uh, if you say if you say that uh, uh, your co-host Jay suggested that it's it's the fault of the DNC, as well, he's partly correct because, of course, for the Russians to penetrate the system, someone had to make a mistake. Uh, someone had to click a document or a link they shouldn't have. But that's it's not true that uh, uh, the Republicans, just for an example, are in some way immune to these kinds of mistakes. In fact, and I talked about it in, in the Malicious Life's episode about it, uh, Republican systems were hacked before in exactly the same manner. Uh, even back as far back as 2008, John McCain's computers were, were hacked. Uh, both the Russians and the Chinese were infesting his computer and Colin Powell's computer and Lindsey, Lindsey Graham computer. So. Um, you can probably say that, uh, safely say that most politicians or important organizations, political organizations in the United States are in some way compromised. We know that <laughs> that's a great possibility. It, it sounds like that the weakest link here, though, really isn't so much uh, sort of these sophisticated security systems or lack thereof, but rather people who click on things they shouldn't click on. Exactly. That's the human component in the chain of cybersecurity is usually the weakest link because you can try and harden your systems with, you know, sophisticated software and warnings, warning systems, whatnot. Usually uh, you fall victim to the simplest sort of what we call social engineering attacks. Uh, such as uh, directed emails, you know, pretending to be an email from a friend, just for an example. Or, you know, maybe you're looking, I mean, I've been in cybersecurity, I mean, covering and writing about cybersecurity for like, what, 10 to 15 years now. And I myself have almost fallen victim to two instances of 
spear of, of not spear phishing, phishing emails, generic phishing emails. Just a simple example. I mean, one time I had this shipment coming in. I was expecting a shipment from Amazon, just an ordinary shipment. And by chance, I I got a phishing, generic phishing email uh, pretending to be an official okay. mail from Amazon. And I nearly, nearly clicked the link, but in the last last minute, something seemed off in the mail. And looking deeper, I discovered that it was phishing. It wasn't directed uh, particularly at me. It's just kind of a generic attack. But everyone can fall. And, of course, if someone is targeting specifically you, if you are a high-profile target, uh, as, for example, DNC, someone in the DNC, you'd most probably won't <laughs> you won't yeah. have a great chance <laughs> so so it's essentially that the these hostile actors whether they're foreign governments or agents of them they don't necessarily really have to work all that hard to to get into these systems then yeah um i mean there's there are there are there are levels of of effort that you have to do because i'm guessing that even even though the dnc was hacked they do have cybersecurity experts working for them and uh, people where uh, you know educated uh, software systems were up to date so it's not as easy say uh, hacking into as as hacking to some you know random guy whose right. maybe windows version is not up to date uh, but having said that it's not an operation that requires you know multimillion uh, intelligence uh, officers and spies trying to collect information. It's rather simple and you just uh, need patience and, you know, trying again and again and again. And eventually someone in the DNC would click the, the wrong link. So it sounds like it's sort of inherently very difficult to secure a system that has a lot of users like the DNC or the RNC simply because every, I mean, there are so many opportunities to send out something that looks seemingly innocuous to any one of those tens or thousands of users. And if they click on it, boom, it's, it's, it can be potentially game over. Exactly. Michael, you won't, you won't believe how easy it is to penetrate the DNC, but really, I mean, the DNC as an organization with thousands of users, all of them, all of whom connect to the internet, is a, is a very easy target when you compare it to, for example, a nuclear uh, power generating uh, facility, right? I mean, you, you would expect that nuclear power facilities would be much better protected, not connected directly to the internet, a much tougher fortress to conquer. And still most of the nuclear facilities in the United States were hacked or were attacked numerous times. And we know that many of them were hacked in, in, in some ways. So you could you could say that the DNC never stood a chance once, once the Russians had the sights right. on them. Now, there are also other stories around the 2016 election about uh, saying that Russians or other you know, hostile foreign powers hacked into state election records and state systems. And that understandably raised a lot of concern. I mean, how serious of a threat was that? Um, I don't know of any conclusive evidence for tampering in, in the election results, per se. I know that there are many, many researchers, security researchers claiming that electronic voting systems are insecure, 
that the manufacturers are claiming that they are very secure. <laughs> of course. But independent, of course. But the independent security researchers have found numerous holes, security holes, and weaknesses. So I won't go as far as to say that the Russians have hacked electronic systems. But if you ask my personal opinion, then I would say it's very likely. Very, very likely that they have. I mean, once we know that it's possible, and if we know that it's possible, then Russians already probably figured that out. They have some, they have experts in of their own there. And we know that the Russian government wanted to manipulate the U.S. elections. That's also a given. Uh, one plus one equals two. They probably tried. And if they tried, I would guess that they were successful. How far were they successful? Did they manage to actually influence elections in one or two or many more states? I don't know. Nobody knows right now. But I would say that this is a very, very grave and serious threat to Western democracies. Yeah. All of them, not only the U.S., all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, elections, democratic elections are the heart and soul of democracy. So um, manipulating uh, elections is a grave threat. And uh, I would say that moving into electronic voting systems is, in my personal opinion, a very bad move. Uh, in the current state of cybersecurity. So, so one would think that at least there should be paper backups of these various things in case there's a question about this then. So I would say that um, uh, elections are too important for uh, democracies, Western democracies, to accept the risk of uh, someone manipulating them. Because if the citizens lose trust in in elections, they lose trust in the whole process and the whole the, the whole idea of democratic elections. So um, I would probably say that it's much much safer, at least to have a backup paper system, but probably stay out stay out of of electronic voting machines at, at that specific uh, particular point in time. Now, assuming it seems to be a safe assumption that the Russians are behind at least some of these attacks. And of course, they don't I mean, they have elections, but they're not really free and fair elections even for us to say <laughs> counterhack, even if we felt like that was ethically OK for us to do. Are there any sort of uh, cyber countermeasures that the United States or other, you know, or other uh, Western countries can can take in terms of, you know, counterattacking or, or fighting back against this? Uh, you're right. It's true. I mean, counterattack of the same nature, trying to manipulate Russian elections is useless because it's not a free and fair elections. So uh, it doesn't matter really what you're trying to manipulate. The, the, the other opponent won't win. Right. right? So it's not really feasible. But um, you could say that right now we're in a sort of, of a cold war against the Russians, uh, not very much different than what we had in the 60s, 70s and, and early 80s, right? Uh, back then, it was a war of intelligence, of spies. It was all secret service against secret service. And it's not very dissimilar to what's going on today in, in cyber war, in, in, cyber, in the cyber world. I mean... There are many, many levels of attacks, uh, of escalations that you can go to if you think that the other side is 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 attacking you in some sort. Uh, you know, the, the Americans could uh, 
maybe attack military installations or military networks, maybe disrupt banking systems, communication systems. It all depends on the level of escalation that the U.S. government is willing to, uh, to, to go to in response to, to, to the Russian trying to disrupt elections. Uh, now, what, what's different maybe than what we had in the, in the Cold War in the 70s and 60s is the problem of attribution. Uh, back then, if you caught a spy, you could say rather with a large amount of, uh, of, of assurance if he's a Russian or not, right. if he's a Russian spy or not. Right now, it's very difficult to prove that someone is behind a cyber attack. For example, the DNC hack. Uh, we we can, I mean, after really investigating the attack, whatever, we can say with certain amount of credibility that the Russians were behind that. Yet, uh, as we've already mentioned, these are quasi uh, civilian groups. So the Russians can have a sort of plausible deniability which makes it a really challenge, a real challenge for leaderships, I mean, for, for, for the U.S. leadership to reach an agreement on escal escalating the conflict. You have to really point a finger at someone without a definite proof and say, no, that's, that's wrong and you need to stop. But then they're saying, of course, we didn't do anything, yeah. right? So it's a real challenge of leadership. It's uh, the the U.S. can go to war; they can attack. I mean, we've seen the latest attack in in Syria, for example. Uh, the Assad regime claims they didn't uh, attack anyone with chemical uh, weapons, whatever. And the the I mean, the American leadership and the friend, the French and the British leadership, they said, nope, uh, you did it. You must be punished, even though you said you didn't do that. And they did attack, but it's a matter of how, how well, let's say how I would. I'm looking for the right word here. I mean, you can, as the listeners can probably understand, English is my second language. So I'm, I'm trying to find the correct word. It's all a matter of how how much backbone the leader sure. have. Yeah. How 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 confident he is or she is in in trying to to push the other side. Yeah, and I, I believe, in fact, that we know that the United States has even done things preemptively. I'm thinking about uh, uh, cyber attacks to slow down the advance of Iran's nuclear weapons program, for instance, is, is one thing that comes to mind. And I'm sure there have been others that I'm not as aware of. So it is something that the U.S. government has done in the past. Yes. I mean, it's always an option. Yeah. You know, I, but it seems to me that I, and I'm sure there are a lot of a lot of countries that do this, but it seems like Russia is the one that gets the most uh, that's most in the news lately. In fact, to the point where uh, Kaspersky Labs, the, the, the antivirus, they do the antivirus that a lot of people have used. There are a lot of Americans I know who feel uncomfortable now about using that since it's a, a Russian company. And so it, it seems like is Russia really the ringleader of this in the world? Is that your sense? Uh, uh, Russia is definitely one of the gravest threats in that sense, but it's not, it's not the only one, maybe not even the biggest one. China is rather well known for having a large body of uh, cyber uh, intelligence and cyber 
uh, warfare in in the military, and uh, and of course they are very very focused on. Uh, it's also well known in the last even ten years or so, very much focused on business attack, attacking businesses right. and stealing trade secrets, patents, and what's not. So in that sense, China, the Chinese could be even more of a threat, perhaps. Uh, all depends on who's getting hurt by the attack. The, Rus- the Chinese, as far as I'm aware of, have no interest in, in manipulating the U.S. elections, per se. Or they didn't have any until recently. Uh, but they, they did major damage to the business sector of oh, the gosh, U.S. Yeah. So, yeah. What about like terrorist groups like ISIS or or rogue countries like North Korea? North Korea is certainly in the news a lot. What sort of capability do you think they have to to, to wreak chaos uh, electronically with these kind of attacks? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, I don't think we should bundle groups like ISIS with countries such as North Korea Mm -hmm. because the... um, uh, the, the terrorist groups are relatively low on, on you know, money and, and uh, they don't have uh, sophisticated experts uh, as countries have. I mean, uh, when you're running a country, you can kind of pick and choose from the population, the people that you want to uh, encourage and have in your service. ISIS, for example, didn't have that or they don't they still do they don't have that uh, pleasure they they only can get the people that want to join them in their cause and actually thinking about it uh, most of the people who join terrorist groups are not very tech savvy to say the least right i mean most of them are kind of um, regular kids maybe misguided kids who fail victim to delusions and propaganda you won't find too many top-notch hackers in groups like ISIS. So the most that most the, the greatest cyber threat per se that they can pose is mainly propaganda. They could try to kind of uh, you know release uh, the kind of sort of uh, dreadful movies uh, videos that we've saw from ISIS and try to instill fear in 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 people, but. I, I don't consider that a great grave threat. Uh, uh, bodies, uh, countries such as North Korea are a different kind of story entirely. Uh, for example, uh, the North Koreans have been running um, a kind of uh, a haste, bank, bank, banking haste uh, program for the last, I think it's five or six years. I also did an episode that of, about that in Malicious Life. Uh, they hacked into banks all over the world, from the U.S. to Russia to South America to Arab countries, whatever, stealing billions of dollars. I mean, bank hastes in 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 uh, in ways we didn't see before in the history of of the world. Uh, and these kinds of operations, um, are, in this specific case, it's meant to finance the, the, the government. North Korea is, is under very severe sanctions. So these kinds of operations uh, indicate a kind of sophistication. They have personnel. They have the, 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 the minds, educated people. They have budgets to spend on top-notch tools for, for cyber, t- cyber attacks. Uh, and these kinds of, 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 uh, of actors 
are uh, can be considered a th- serious threat if they want to, for example, penetrate uh, a nuclear power facility. They can do that. They have the potential. They have the ability. Now, the how grave is a threat from uh, a nation such as North Korea? I would say that it's not a major threat. Not, I mean, we tend to see in in uh, mainstream media the kind of um, scary scary stories. You know, uh, watch out! The North Koreans are behind the latest ransomware attack, and they can wreak havoc, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, in in truth, it's probably much more difficult to really, really destabilize. Uh, a powerful state, a nation such as the U.S., uh, through cyber attacks. Uh, I mean, you can, as I said, penetrate a power power generating facility, but you can penetrate one. You can penetrate two, maybe. If you have lots of manpower, you can penetrate three or four. <laughs> there are thousands of such facilities in the states, so it's not feasible to disrupt the normal life of a whole country. Unless it's very for a very short time, maybe. So I'm not. Uh, I don't think the really well. Let's say the the real life threat from these actors is something that regular citizens should probably lose sleep over. Well, that's encouraging. You know, you mentioned ransomware. I wanted to ask you about that because it had been in the news recently in the U.S. because the city of Atlanta in Georgia, their city government was the victim of a ransomware attack and it sort of stopped city government dead in its tracks. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, explain to listeners what that exactly is and what happened and how governments and other organizations can respond to those sort of attacks. Uh, okay, so um, I'm not familiar with the exact case uh, of uh, Atlanta's ransomware. Okay, I'm quite. Uh, I'm halfway across the right. world from sure. Atlanta, so and I, I really wish I would visit Atlanta someday. But uh, ransomware is a very familiar threat now. It has been for the last two years. So just for the sake of your listeners, what's a ran- what is a ransomware? Uh, ransomware is, uh, as, the, as the name indicates, a software that takes over your computer, locks your files, either encrypts them or makes them go away, disappear completely. And then you, as a user, you're getting uh, a sort of, uh, you know, scary red, glowing red screen saying, pay such and such bitcoins or whatever crypto coin is they use, uh, or else your files will be gone forever. And you can't decrypt them. Uh, that's the basic of uh, basis of uh, cyber uh, uh, ransomware. Uh, it's been around for actually much longer than two years, except that um, uh, up until recently, the problem with ransomware was that uh, it was hard for the crooks to get the money from the victims, because if you're paying someone, uh, for example, you're transferring money from one bank to another. Uh, money is traceable; it leaves a trace. So, if you're if you're demanding ransom and you're getting the money, and five minutes later the FBI is knocking on your yeah, door, exactly. you're not going you're not going places as a criminal. No. Uh, but with Bitcoin uh, rising to, to fame in the last two or three years, uh, things have turned completely. Now there's the possibility of what's called a pseudo anonymous uh, payment. You can send someone bitcoins without uh, without knowing who they are 
there are just a number, uh, series of numbers in the internet. And so uh, we see the rise of ransomware. Uh, it's actually in 2016, I think it was probably, it accounted for something like 70% of all cyber, uh, cyber attacks, which is a huge number, yeah. just within two, year, two three years. Um, so I'm guessing that the city of Atlanta, the government, the city's government was attacked. Similarly, someone got uh, an email, probably, with a PDF attached or whatever. It contained malware, ransomware. Once he, he or she clicked the link, uh, the document, uh, the ransomware started working in the background without the user even noticing something. But the the, the ransomware probably uh, was looking for specific files, uh, for example, Word document, Excel files, media, I mean, pictures, whatever, and encrypted all of them. And once it did, it spread around the network, uh, infecting all other computers. And we've seen numerous such attacks in the last two years, including I think the most, probably most famous one was the WannaCry attack in 2017. I was think it was early 2017, which, which uh, hit I think several tens of thousands of organizations all around the world, huge number of computers, uh, of all sorts of companies, organizations. I mean, there were hospitals who were hit and I mean, there were people uh, from, from media reports, people died because the, there was no medical information that there was needed, it was encrypted. And it got to the point that many organizations are um, kind of gathering Bitcoin, hoarding Bitcoins just for the, the time when they will be hacked, they will be ransomed, and then they would pay the ransom as fast as possible just to get the files back. And of course, the the basic problem with uh, this uh, response is that you're actually encouraging criminals right. to continue. <laughs> it's the troll under the bridge. Uh, they won't go away and, and <laughs> while you're paying. Uh, but of course, everybody wants their uh, information back, so we can't really blame them. Yeah. Now, are there any specific things that you see that that governments, that really at any level, uh, either they aren't doing or that there may be not doing enough of that make them fairly easy to target? Um, I don't know specifically about cities, for example. I mean, every organization nowadays should have an IT department which is which should be capable of, of handling these kinds of threats. Really, you can't run a city now without an IT department who knows what to do. It's impossible nowadays with all the, the the connections and all the networks guiding, controlling everything in a city. Ransomware just is just one particular threat out of possible ten or twenty threats that city should be able to to work against. And uh, in that case, they probably failed with the most basic um, uh, cause root of action, which is backup. Once you have a backup of all the documents, you don't need to pay the ransom. Uh, I'm guessing that right. I mean, the people in 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 Atlanta's IT department, in Atlanta City uh, IT department, are probably banging their heads in the, against the desks, saying, "Ah, oh, we should have uh, invested in." backup solutions and they will right. in the yeah, future, right. you I have guess. To, 
Yeah. <laughs> so another thing I've heard that's oftentimes a culprit is systems that aren't updated quickly enough. And so that is that is that another big part of it? It is. It is. And it's it's a much and it is a much harder or tougher uh, problem to crack than people th seem to think usually because when you hear that, I mean, uh, some some computers or some organization didn't update update their computers and they are still running Windows XP, which Jeez. kind of expired uh, yeah. 20 years ago, and you're saying to yourself, well, of course they will be hacked. I mean, these are outdated systems. Why hadn't they updated? But it's not as easy as it seems. I mean, take, for example, hospitals. Uh, mo many of the computers were hit in hospitals by WannaCry last year were uh, XP computers, Windows XP computers. But, but hospitals, for example, can update uh, uh, operating systems that easily because they are on those uh, operating systems. They are running medical software, which by itself needs to be updated. And uh, you can't take the risk that you'll update the operating system and uh, the software which administers, um, I don't know, pain medication to to someone would go away and someone would get an overdose. You can't take that risk. So there are many levels of of updates that need to be done in order for the entire system to be updated. And we're talking, it's, it's a similar problem in any organization. And it's usually not uh, feasible. Most organizations must, most organizations have to be in a sort of a stable state in terms of software. And only occasionally can they take the time to update stuff and be in the cutting edge of I mean, closing all the vulnerabilities, whatever. So we can safely assume that even in the future, even in organizations which are aware of the problem and they know that they need to update their software and they know exactly what they're doing, they will be hacked due to not being updated because it's a zero sum game. If you if you're constantly trying to be update, I mean up to date and and and, and keep all software on the cutting edge of, of being updated, you can't really do much useful work sometimes. You're constantly updating. So um, I, I'm not, I, I don't envy ID departments of, you know, large organizations. It's it's a really, really big challenge for them. Yeah, and it's not, it seems to me then, it's not so much a, a Windows problem because Windows as an operating system is inherently worse than, say, Mac or Linux, but just simply that that's what most people are on. And so that's what the hackers target more than anything else. Is that is that about right? Completely right. Completely right. Uh, we know that there are vulnerabilities in almost any software system, from Linux to, um, you know, uh, Macs, whatever. Uh, it's just a matter of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, there are so many Windows machines running that usually for hackers, it's much easier just to create one single version of the malware attacking Windows, and they're already getting 70% of all potential victims. Uh, once we, I mean, in cases where we saw, for example, web servers, uh, web servers are in usually running Linux, uh, operating system. When hackers wanted to attack web servers, they found the vulnerabilities in Linux without too much difficulties. It's there. So it's inherent in all complex, complex software systems. 
have vulnerabilities. It's almost impossible not to. Well, well, given then that so much is now connected, the whole Internet of Things and all that, and and the greater complexity, and, and that there's clearly money in this, at least for the you know the ransomware folks, is it is this sort of like we're fighting a, a losing battle? I mean, are things just going to keep on getting worse and worse, or are we getting better at responding to this stuff? Uh, it's man. I think it's 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 a question. Uh, anyone who would give an answer, it probably depends much more on these that person's personality. If you're a pessimistic or an optimistic, um, my personal opinion is that things are actually getting better. Uh, uh, take for example autonomous vehicles, or even uh, present day, just you know, uh, uh, cutting edge vehicles. Uh, we know that cars, smart cars, can be hacked. Right. I mean, we've seen in the news and media reports hackers hacking into smart cars, hacking into braking systems, whatever. Uh, but the people who build cars nowadays, the engineers who build cars and design cars nowadays are not the same people who designed cars 20 years ago. These people now, they grew into into the the internet into the environment in which we are living today they from 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 early youth they are aware of cyber threats so it's not something that uh, they can kind of i mean older maybe older designers and older older software engineers could say you know i've heard about computer viruses but i've never seen one so it's probably not a big threat and, and it seems funny but really in the 80s for example there were security experts who considered computer viruses to be kind of an urban legend because they'd never seen one. It's, it was pretty rare. Only when they did see one did they really start to believe that there are viruses. And uh, designers nowadays, software engineers, car manufacturers, all all designers who create sophisticated systems, I think they are they grew up in a different world. They are much more... Uh, aligned with present-day threats, so inherently they will design things to be more secure. Now, of course, hackers are getting sophisticated as well, of course, uh, so it's a kind of an arms race, but uh, um, I'm taking a cue here from uh, from biology, I guess, uh, specifically. Uh, if you look like, uh, you know, if, if you, if you take a grand, if you move up scale and you look at, at uh, the battlefield of, of cybersecurity, uh, it's kind of, it kind of seems, uh, much similar to the way viruses and, and germs right. work against, uh, uh, you know, multicellular organisms like, such as ourselves. Uh, they are constantly trying to penetrate our bodies, constantly trying to make us sick, yet sophisticated creatures have evolved sophisticated defense mechanisms and occasionally we have plagues occasionally we'll have a strain of the flu which kind of overwhelms overwhelms the system the defense system for a while but then the system is turned to a sort of equilibrium uh, and that's the way th things have been going for millions of years in evolution and i think that that's will probably what we'll see in the future with uh, cybersecurity as well there will be a kind of of uh, co-evolution going on both uh, attackers and defenders will get constantly better will always be harassed by viruses malware cyber attacks but at the same time 
we'll learn to be more secure in more both in in our personal lives and in organizational sense and it will be a kind of a nuisance <laughs> much like viruses you can't really fight them off <laughs> so it's not going away but it sounds like in the end you're i guess maybe what i could call you a realistic optimist in the end <laughs> yeah i think that's a great term yeah i'll take that <laughs> all right you know, before before i let you go i have one final question for you um do you have any expert advice for listeners who are you know concerned about their own security i mean should they be worried about things like ransomware attacks and that sort of thing and if they should be what sort of things do you recommend that they do to at least minimize their risk, since the risk can never be zero? Um, yes, they should be worried. Definitely, they should be worried. Um, what can we do? Um, again, taking a cue from taking a cue from from biology. What we what are we doing facing threats of viruses and germs? Daily threats. I mean, you know, the world around us is every centimeter of surface is covered with millions upon millions of viruses and germs, we're still, in, we're still alive, right? We're still working. We're not staying at home, sterilizing ourselves all the time. So we need to take the threat uh, uh, in a more rational way and first and foremost, learn to uh, what, what I call digital hygiene. Uh, that means uh, teaching our kids, the same way we teach our kids to you know, wash your hands before you eat, just a basic hygiene rule, which kind of keeps you safe from 70 to 80% of all uh, attacks, all germs and virus attacks, right? Same way with cybersecurity. We need to teach kids from the get-go, from kindergarten, what they should do in, cyberspa in cyberspace, what they shouldn't do, how they should uh, uh, keep their private in uh, information, how, how they should keep their information private, what to share online, uh, what are the telltale signs of, of you know, phishing emails or whatever the, the current threat is. And if you grow up in, in a sort of an educated way and you learn that from a young age, then you'll probably be safe from, you know, 80, 90 percent of threats online. You won't click suspicious links. You won't enter suspicious uh, uh, websites, whatever. That's one thing. So uh, uh, listeners listening to us right now, be educated. Try to understand. I mean, that's usually just under reading some basic stuff on how to uh, be, you know, more careful browsing the Internet and, and installing software, whatnot. But of course, there's always a chance of being attacked, right? I mean, even when you're talking about... Uh, uh, plagues and, and and diseases. There's always a chance that you'll be you'll be hit. So uh, when it comes to to a cyber uh, security, I would say the basic rule is backup. First and foremost, everyone who uses a computer should be should have some sort of a backup solution, because usually most of the stuff that we're working on is not that important most of the time. I mean, if you've got software we use, we've got browsers we use, we've got services, but most of them are not, I mean, you can always format your computer and restart. That's rather easy. What we, it's, what's more difficult to, to replace is valuable information such as documents, uh, pictures, videos, whatever. So first and foremost, backup, backup, backup. Uh, if you can't back up your information, go pay someone who knows what they're doing to set up 
uh, backup plan for you and consider it uh, kind of um, an obligatory visit to the doctor once a year, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's a way of life. You need to do a, a yearly checkup, do a yearly checkup on your data backup. If you have the really bad luck of being hacked uh, or maybe, you know, your bank being hacked and money stolen or your identity being stolen some way, then you'll probably be in the sort of an unlucky minority. And then you'd probably need to use professional services. Go to security experts. Come, there are companies who deal with those kinds of threats. And you're going to need probably to cough up some money, somebody to, to, to fix these things for you. But if you keep your high, digital hygiene to a reasonable level, the, the, the chance that you'll be really badly hit are rather slim and acceptable, unless you're really, really unlucky. All right. Well, with that very practical and good advice, we will close. Uh, Rand Levy, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I hope uh, we did some good to your listeners and helped them find their way in this kind of <laughs> new world of cybersecurity. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.